Hear the word of the Lord from John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, my name is Rob Spikestra, and I'm the pastor of discipleship. And uh, it's been fun to see Kevin's comfortability with his new role as the biblical counselor. Yeah, so uh, you can already see it even when he gives announcements. He's a little more comfortable in that position than he was as a pastoral assistant. And so if you do, if there's anything that... You need uh, someone to just kind of listen and to hear you out, hear your story out, any struggles or troubles or difficulties that you would just love to have someone uh, listen. Uh, He is ready to do that, listen well, and then to bring God's word into to bear upon whatever it is that you might have. So I really encourage you to reach out, uh, reach out to him. Well, good, a good story always leaves you hanging, wanting more. And so if you've ever read a novel or book and you've got a really good one, you just, you get to the end of the chapter and what do you want to do? You want to get to the next chapter. You want to keep on reading. Or if you are one who binges a little bit on uh, episodes in whatever your favorite uh, streaming service is, a good episode or a good good, uh, story is one in which you come to the end of the episode and all of a sudden credits come up and you're wishing... I want to, I want to know more. I want to, so you, what do you do? Well, yeah, we can stay up a little later, can't we? You know, uh, we begin to dismiss the fact we have to get up the next morning and we begin to keep on watching. And uh, yeah, that's how we, that's how we binge because good stories always leave you hanging, wanting for more. And so this is what we have here with the, the with Nicodemus and Jesus' interaction with him at the beginning of chapter three of our, within chapter three here, uh, what we saw last week. And that is that Nicodemus was one, if not the teacher of Israel. Uh, and he's coming to Jesus on behalf of others, probably the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling body, uh, and uh, the, the Sadducees and Sanhedrin, to determine, he's there to determine whether or not Jesus is worthy of his time and worthy of their time. See, he knew Jesus was someone to consider purely by the miraculous signs he was performing. See, in Nicodemus' own words, he said, for no one, Nicodemus says, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, Nicodemus, in his mind, he was Jesus' equal, if not superior. But Jesus will have nothing to do with it. And he begins to show Nicodemus how he is in the dark. That he is in the dark about who Jesus is. He is in the dark about who he is in his own soul condition. And he's thus in the dark about the remedy for that soul condition. 
and ends with reminding Nicodemus of an event in Israel's own story where snake-bitten people destined to die could be saved by literally looking up to a bronze serpent that was set on a pole so that everyone who looked on that bronze serpent was saved. And so, Jesus says to Nicodemus, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And of course, referring to the cross, his cross. Done. End of the episode. Credits roll. Gotta wait for the next episode. A really good story leaves you hanging wanting more. And that is exactly what has happened here. We don't know how Nicodemus responded. We don't know how the conversation ended. It's just done. See, John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21, the passage that we have for us today, is John's reflection of what has transpired between Nicodemus and Jesus. See, what is more important here than satisfying our curiosity about how Nicodemus responded is how we will respond to the story. And that was John's concern, which is why he gave us verses 16 through 21. That's really God's concern for our lives. That's why he gave us verses 16 through 21. See, missing this passage, missing 16 through 21, in a sense, the next episode, missing this has life and death consequences for us, for you. See, what you do with his mission Jesus' mission will result in life or death for you and others. See, that's what, Je that's what really Jesus is pointing to when he reminds Nicodemus at the end of there of that pinnacle moment of Jesus' life that it's going to be that he is going to be lifted up. That this is his mission for life. So again, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with the son's mission? Father, um, we pray that you would help us as we enter into this passage, knowing, Father, last week and knowing the verses before this that tell us that we are dark, that we have a darkness, that we cannot see the light apart from you, Father, through your Holy Spirit giving us light. And so we pray, Father, that today as we come into this section that you would give us light to understand what Jesus' mission was, why he had this mission, what's behind this mission, and what are we to do with this mission. So, Father, we pray that you would be doing what we cannot do apart from your Holy Spirit to be working and illuminating your scripture into our hearts and lives. Please do your work, we ask, for our good and for your glory. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
Now, this is probably the most known verse in all of Scripture, certainly by those who have grown up in the church, but even among those who have little or no church background. See, when I was a child, um, I grew up watching, watching sports on television. And, of course, those were the days with broadcast television. And, and there was this ubiquitous spectator, that is a spectator you always saw, who sat in the prime spot for television, for television viewers, and he was wearing, I'm seeing some smiles on some faces here so they know where I'm going, so wearing a, a rainbow Afro wig, and he had a sign. And that sign simply was the address for what I just read for you, John 3, 16. Now remember, this is, this is in broadcast days, and so uh, what he would do is you, you would have local television stations showing local games, but I remember in the NFL they would have these national games, and this individual would sit in a place where you would always see him in that game, and it was right behind the goalposts. So to every field goal and every extra point, as the ball was going through, he was there with his sign, John 3, 16. <laughs> With the hope, I'm sure, that you would actually look that up if you knew where to go with, those, with that address. We know John 3.16, many of us. Those of you who grew up in the church probably had a similar experience as mine. This is the first verse I memorized in Sunday school. When you are encountering someone who doesn't know the gospel, many times you'll bring them to John chapter 3 to talk about what it means to be born again. And you land on verses, uh, verse 16 here as kind of that key verse for them to understand what they need to do. Or if you're just trying to capture the message of the whole gospel of John, if you say, you know, if there's one verse I could pick out to make sure that everybody understands what this gospel is about, you'd pick that one right over there. We're very familiar with John 3.16. So familiar that we can quickly move past it and not fully appreciate what is being said here. So this morning, what we are going to do is we are going to bask in the light of John 3.16 and let the rest of the verses kind of just shine their light upon what it has to say for us here. So that's my outline, John 3.16, those, ver those words there. So here we go. With the help of verses 17 through 21, Jesus' mission. Now, what I said in my introduction is this, that Jesus has stated his mission in verses 14 and 15. So here's verses 14 and 15. As Moses, he's talking to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man be, so the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. See, this is why Jesus came. He came to die on the cross. That's his mission. His suffering and dying on the cross was the pinnacle moment of that mission so that everything previous to that moment was building for and to that moment that he was going to be on the cross. See, there was a perfect timing for his death. There was a perfect purpose for his death. Thus, there are times when he avoided Jerusalem. 
Uh, we see that in chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles open, you turn to John chapter 7, verse 1, beginning in verse 1. And this is what we read. It says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. And Galilee was a, a, was a province that was uh, pretty significantly north of Judea, the province of Judea, of which then Jerusalem was situated there in, in Judea. So it's pretty far away. Significantly north. He, he would not go about in Judea. Why? Because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And many times when you find the word the Jews here in the Gospel of John, it's going to refer to those who are in authority, like the Sanhedrin that Nicodemus represented. See, Jesus, he dealt with the real world and real decisions that had real consequences. To go to Judea was to flirt not only with a premature death, but also a purposeless death. He came to die, but for a particular purpose and in a particular way. His brothers, his younger brothers, was in the dark, like Nicodemus, of who he was and what his mission was. So what do they do? Like any good young, younger brother does, give advice. So they give him some advice. Verse 2. Look at verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Now this is the, one of the three major feasts that the people of Israel would come to Jerusalem. And so the majority of many people would come to Jerusalem during the feast of booths, booths and they would converge on Jerusalem. So his brothers, they saw an opportunity. Here is an opportunity. Verse 3. His brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples, that is your followers, that they also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known open, openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, why did they say this? Well, John comments, verse 5, For not even his brothers believed in him. They were like Nicodemus. So I hope you didn't miss it last week. When we were looking at Nicodemus and his interaction with Jesus. See, Nicodemus, here he is. He is a religious leader. He cares about spiritual things and about the, the, the soul condition. He was also a ruler and he was the one who was kind of coming with a lot of an influence. He, he was one who was uh, uh, the teacher of Israel. Here he was, face to face with the very one in whom he is looking for, that is the Messiah, the Savior, and he's doing all of this, and what happens? He misses him. So I hope you didn't miss it. If, if Nicodemus was one who was like this, what about us? Do you see yourself more concerned about spiritual conditions, more uh, a, teacher of, a teacher of God's word, and think that somehow you're going to get it? I mean, think about the brothers. The brothers, they lived with him. They interacted with him on a daily basis. And they missed him. What about us? If we think that somehow, if you think that somehow you can see Jesus on your own, that you can get it, you're delusional. His own brothers didn't get him. And neither did this spiritual leader, Nicodemus. 
See, they had eye faith. They saw amazing works and saw an opportunity for Jesus to, you know, use those works and to gather a following and make a name for himself. But they were dark to who he was and their own condition and God's remedy. So look how Jesus responds to them in verses 6 through 8. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. Your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You, you go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. See, Jesus was on mission. And thus he ordered his life around that mission. Yet ultimately, in respect to the three persons of the Trinity, it actually isn't the Son's mission. It's the Father's mission. God the Father, it is His mission in which Jesus is in submission. So, Whenever we talk about submission, being in a submissive relationship, wives to husbands, church members to elders, employees to employers, we take our cue as believers in Christ, we take our cue and see the glory of, of it in this relationship of the Son to the Father. So this is really the Father's mission. And this mission proceeds from the loving heart of God. For, for, for. Now Jesus has identified his mission to be lifted up and now John explains why the mission exists. For, for God so loved the world. God loves now, this, this, this isn't just a vague, sentimental feeling. This isn't love is love. Unrooted, floating in the air, feeling that God has for the world. No. See, it's not surprising that God loves. In John's first letter, so we're in the Gospel of John, and then you have three letters at the end of your New Testament, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. In the first letter, he writes this simple but sublime statement. He simply writes, John does, the same author that we have here, John, 1 John 4, 16, God is love. So it shouldn't be surprising to us that the Father's mission is one that is going to be generated, pushed out by uh, this love. But John is clear that this is not some kind of vague, esoteric statement not attached to action. Rather, it is attached to the free sacrificial act of Jesus on the cross. So in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, this is what he says. In this is love. Oh, good. Now we can know what love is. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Well, how do we know? And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Well, there's a word we all use every day, propitiation. <laughs> 
See, propitiation is really looking back to the sacrifices that God had given to his people, the nation of Israel, that was pointing toward the sacrifice, the sacrifice of his son. And the propitiation is the sacrifice in which God's right wrath upon a sinner would be covered. It would be covered by that sacrifice. That sacrifice would have to give its life, shed its blood, give its life, and it would cover then the sinner who should receive the wrath of God, but rather the sacrifice receives it in, in his place. All pointing to the sacrifice, Jesus. So in this is love, God loved in such a way that we would understand that it is a love of action on behalf of sinners. See, if it's not surprising that God loves because he's a God who's loved, what is surprising, or let me use another word, astounding, what is astounding in God loves the world is the subject it is the who. Who's doing the loving here? God. See, in God's story that is given to us in the Bible, there's a moment when he reveals his name to his people, the nation of Israel, before they were a nation. They were still in captivity. They were still slaves in Egypt. And he's out in the desert wilderness that he reveals his name first to Moses. And his name is Yahweh which in our English version of the Bible typically will have, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a lowercase, L -O, I mean, uppercase, L-O-R-D. And it's this name, Yahweh, that is, sets him off from every other lowercase gods and from his creation. So if you had your Old Testament Bible and you decide, you know what, I'm going to count every time that name, Yahweh, comes up, you would come up with, in the Old Testament, 6,800 plus times. And it is within this name that carries the very essence of who he is. See, this name, Yahweh, is just a Hebrew word that is built off the Hebrew verb, I am. Thus, in this encounter with Moses, the ESV simply translates his name as, I am who I am. In other words, God's name is a message about how he intends to be known. Thus, every 6,800 plus times this name comes up, it is supposed to conjure up in your mind the essence of who he is. He is the I am. And this reminds us of his utterly unique being, utterly unique being. Now, it really points to God's absolute being. And so what do I mean by absolute being? Here we go, absolute being. Well, it means this. Number one, God's absolute being means he has never had a beginning. Number two, God's absolute meaning being means God will never end. Number three, God's absolute being means God is absolute reality. There is no reality before him. There is no reality outside of him unless he wills it and makes it. He is 
all that was and is and will be. God's number four, God's absolute being means that God is utterly independent. He needs absolutely nothing. Number five, God's absolute being means that everything that is not God depends totally upon God. Number six, God's absolute meaning being means that all the universe is by comparison to God as nothing. See, see God, is, God is graciously has given us technology and the purpose of technology, well, at least one of the purposes of technology is for us to understand who he is. And so what has he done? He's given us telescopes. And so what we do is we had telescopes here on the land and we looked out into the stars and we said, wow, there's a lot of galaxies out there. We thought, I'm sure we've kind of counted them all. Uh, but then we, we got new technology, new technology to take us out into space. And now we have space, space telescopes to send us out. And we can begin to look. And we found out, oh, the, amount, the number of galaxies we thought there used to be, oh, we're way under that. Oh, it's way greater than what we understood. So that as we look out into the universe, what we're discovering is, what we cannot even fathom in our mind is, and it goes on forever and ever and ever. See, all of us here are limited. All of us have limits. You're limited by something. Perhaps you were limited this morning by sleep. Perhaps you were tired. Perhaps you are tired. You've got limits. Your realm has limits. You can only affect so many people. You can only do so many things. You have limits. See, he is absolutely unique. He is an absolute being, which means he has no limits. So that as we look out into the universe and we cannot imagine it going on forever and ever, and yet it does, and he says, I'm above that. Whatever that means. See, let me give you one more. God's absolute being means that he is the absolute standard of truth, goodness, and beauty. That if we, that if we could comprehend what is true and good and beautiful, fully and wholly, we would want to treasure that. And we could go on about what it means for him to be an absolute being, but I think you get the point. We are created. He is the uncreated one. His being and our being is as far removed from one another as the east is to the west. And yet, God loves the world. God loves you. But what makes God's love even more astounding is who he loves, the object, the world, the world. The word is cosmos. This is the, by the way, this is the first occurrence of love in the gospel of John. And it is shocking that when John introduces this concept of love, it is shocking 
that the object of God's love is the world. A matter of fact, nowhere else in the gospel or even in the New Testament do we find this explicit statement that God loves the world. Now, we can understand the world first in terms of just kind of width, if you will, and that is for the Jewish reader, they understood God's mission only in terms of their nation. God had established his covenant uh, relationship, a, a covenant love with the nation of Israel, and so that's part of the story of the Old Testament, that God would love a people who were small, insignificant, he reminds them of this in Deuteronomy chapter 9. You're a small people. <laughs> you have no influence. And not only that, you're going to reject me. I love you. A people in the end who are rebellious. But what was difficult to imagine is God loving the other pagan nations, pagan nations around them. But God's love is wide enough to embrace all the peoples of the world. But what makes this most astounding, that his understanding the world in terms of depth, of depth. See, the love of God is not to be understood here because humanity is so lovely. No, just the opposite. What makes God's love so astounding and truly difficult for us to grasp is that we are not lovely. See, the customary understanding of the Greek word cosmos when used biblically is that it speaks of, of it with all, within its fallenness. And again, in the letters, uh, John warns his readers not, he actually warns his readers not to love the world or anything in it. Because it is so corrupt. See, while there is nothing new under the sun, every generation takes the advances of technology and we take sin, which every generation does, and we do it to deeper and deeper places in, in depths that we never could have imagined. We go to great depths in terms of our sinning. So that you now come back to our passage at verse 18 and we read these words. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. Now what I want you to do is I just want you to key on these two words, condemned already. What, do, what does this mean and when is the already happening? When is the already? One of the great classics of literature is Crime and Punishments, written by the Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky. And it is a story of a young student in Russia named Raskolnikov, who is a, is a promising student, a promising young man, uh, young man, but he is poor and he needs money. And so Dostoevsky, he writes this story where the character, this character, he, he decides he's going to murder an elderly pawnbroker who, the character, Raskolnikov, sorry, <laughs> he argues to himself, he says, you know, this pawnbroker, he's really of no use. Nobody really cares about him. He's old. And he's morally questionable. And so he murders him. He gets away with a crime, 
and begins to prosper. He launches his career to what he thinks is going to be a prosperous life. But all the way through the story, in the novel, there is this relentless outworking of judgment for his acts. Punishment follows crime. So the point of the novel is that Raskolnikov stood condemned from the moment in which he had performed the act. Now, most who read the novel recognize the justice of its plot, but what we understand in the novel, we reject when it comes to the eternally seriousness of our own spiritual condition. See, we must not, we must not come to this passage, nor must we come to even that interaction with Nicodemus and Jesus as somehow Nicodemus or somehow those who are hearing the gospel as if somehow we are neutral. We're not. See, as a man or a woman who is standing, kind of hearing the gospel, we are not in neutral ground as, so, as somehow we can, oh, you know, I'm going to choose, I'm not going to choose God here and the consequences will be God's wrath and condemnation. Or no, I'm going to choose God here and I'm going to have the consequences of joy and salvation. No, we're not in that position when the gospel is presented to us. We are not in a neutral position. According to God's word, we have already made our choice. See, remember Isaiah 53, verse 6? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned some of us to his own way. No, every one of us. Every one of us. Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 11, which is really just simply a, uh, he's quoting uh, Psalm 14. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And John concurs in verse 19 of our passage. See, he uses some courtroom, some courtroom verbiage. See, look what he says there in verse 19. This is the judgment. Or we could just simply say, this is the verdict. After all the evidence has come in, the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Now, how do we know that they loved darkness rather than light? Because their works were evil. And see, so you begin to see here, this is really a love issue at hand. What is it that we love? Now, we could say this. We could say, you know, if only, if only Jesus would come and if I could see him face to face and I could really get to know him, I am sure that I would understand him to be the treasure that he says that he is. But John has already introduced for us in the introduction to be looking for this. So that John 1, 9 says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. As he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Nicodemus. 
A few verses later, John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, and we have embraced him with our entire love for him. No. It's not what we do. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, why is it that we would not love him? Why would we not love that light? Verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things. Now, wicked things are doing evil, and evil is defined as loving anything less than the standard that God has given as true, good, and beautiful. In other words, him. So if there's any moment or any time in your life in which you did not really embrace God as your greatest good, as the treasure that we discover that Jesus Christ is, if you have not loved him fully and wholly, the one who is an absolute reality, the absolute being from who was and is and will be, if you have not, if you have not done that, if you have not embraced him, then you are evil. And out of your evil, there is a wickedness. See, because what happens is out of an evil heart then comes through our fingertips, and so we do wicked things. We love something less Something finite rather than the infinitely lovely God. See, it's a heart issue. We don't love him. And so we are already condemned being born into this world. That's our condition. We are not neutral. We do not love him. As a matter of fact... We hate him. See, I don't say that. He says it. He hates, for everyone who does wicked things, hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? Lest his works should be exposed. Lest it should be seen that we don't love what is truly lovely. So we hate. We hate for people to see that in us. And that's a strong word. See, this isn't an issue about indifference. No, it's a love problem. The world, the cosmos, hates what? Hates the light, hates God, hates the sun and what they stand for. The strife between good and evil is no lukewarm affair. See, there's another mission by our enemy, Satan's mission. His mission is to steal, kill, and destroy. So he hates God. And there is a bitter hatred that he has for God, his son, and his mission, and the object of his mission, and that is you. He hates you. And those who do his bidding also have a bitter hatred. So do not be surprised by the words and works of bitter hatred that people have toward those who claim Christ. This isn't a neutral game. And yet, what is the driving force? What is the Father's disposition towards those who bitterly hate him? Love. God so loved the world. 
so that in our cultural battles that we have been talking about over the past few years, we need to remember the very people who hate Christ and what Christ's followers stand for, truth, goodness, and, and beauty as defined by Yahweh. It is these that is the object of God's mission moved by his love for the world, and so we are to love them. Now, how has he manifested this love? Well, we see it in the next phrase. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So who did the father give? Well, he gave his only son. Now, if you are from an earlier generation, older generation, you might, might, might remember the words only begotten. This was a phrase to capture the uniqueness of the Son from all creation. So that as the Father is the absolute being above all creation, so like Father, like Son. The rarest of rare. So the Father gave us the rarest of the rare in order to demonstrate his love to us. He gave his only son, the unique one, the one and only unique one. That's what the word begotten means, one and only unique one. Jesus is the rarest of the rare, and it is him, his most precious son, that he gave. For what purpose? For what purpose? Well, there he goes on. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God, the Father, did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world. The world is already condemned. Did not send the Son to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So what are we to be saved from? We are to be saved from the wrath of God, which would be our own, our own that we would deserve. See, it's interesting, as Paul, as he's writing to the Romans, he wants them to understand something about their condition, just like Jesus was doing with Nicodemus, and that is in chapter 1, he says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all those who are ungrateful, unthankful, who will not embrace God, even though it's very clear that God is the one who is this absolute being within, within the universe. And then in chapter 2, he says, be careful that in hearing the gospel, you don't continue to be a, a person who will not respond to it, but rather just storing up the wrath of God. See, see when we understand wrath, we understand what's behind that, and, and we understand it when we, uh, when we see something that is innocent and it's not being treated as it should be. It's value, and so this is what drives all those YouTube uh, videos about uh, stray dogs getting found and being helped. Uh, these, these awful, you know, moments where we find, they find this stray dog and, and they see it and, and you're like, that's wrong, we shouldn't, that shouldn't be. And so then this person brings them in and, you know, we see this mangy, ugly thing and it's starving and it's little and everything of this nature. And then over time, as this person cares for them, uh, cares for this dog, this dog becomes this beautiful, you know, this beautiful being. You can tell what I, I watch. Okay, so that's what I watch. <laughs> but yeah, rage. 
See, we understand wrath. We understand when something that is absolutely valuable is not treated as it ought to be. And so we're angry. We get angry at these things. And so there's a lot more serious things out there in the world that are not being treated appropriately and properly. And we should be anger, angered by that. That comes because we're made in the image of God. Because he's the one who is absolutely beautiful. He's absolutely good and true. And when we love something that is finite, when we love a truth that is not true, when we love something that is good but really not good, and when we love something that is beautiful that's really not beautiful in comparison to the absolute one, then there is an eternal wrath that has to be paid. Eternal. Oh, I hope we have a sacrifice that is as absolute as our Father. And we do. And we do. See, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only unique one, the Son, to die on the cross, to take the eternal wrath of God and absorb it. Absorb it. So it goes back to uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, which says, God is love. How do we know God is love? 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, and that is that God has given his son to be the propitiation. This is the one that all the sacrifices were pointing toward. They're pointing to this one, Jesus Christ, the absolute being, the second person of the Trinity. He's the one who took the wrath of God on our behalf. He's the one who paid the price that we should have paid because God is a God of love. He loves you. So the purpose is that all who will believe in him will have eternal life. So rather than the condemnation and this perishing under the wrath of God, uh, we are people who are covered by Jesus Christ, and we are people now who can be saved, who will have eternal, who will have eternal life. And this is good news. This is good news. This is good news uh, for for us because one, as believers in Jesus Christ, so those who have not, who have responded to the gospel, we can know this, that whatever we are going through, whatever difficulties we are going through, whatever trials we are going through, I didn't put this up on the board, but, but I, I probably should or on the, on the screens here, but uh, when we're in the moment, when we're in the difficulty, when we're going through the suffering and pain, and maybe it's a, a loss, a physical loss, or maybe it's a spiritual loss, or maybe a, a spiritual difficulty or, or financial difficulty or whatever it is that you are going through as a believer in Christ, and you wonder, God, do you really love me? We're reminded of Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things that we need in that difficulty? All the things you need in your difficulty, he promises to give you because he loves you. See, you don't have eye faith. He doesn't remove. You pray, and he doesn't remove the difficulty. You pray, he doesn't remove the difficulty. You pray, and you wonder, does God love? And you say, yeah, he does. Because he gave the rarest of the rare. In order that I, who was a mangy dog, became a beautiful breed. 
He loves you. And believer, those who have traced, placed their faith in Jesus Christ, that one of the things we confessed in our confession that kind of struck me as we were doing it, uh, and that is that we tend to, when we sin, we tend to be, we feel the guilt and we feel the shame, and we wonder, you know, maybe I need to do something to assuage my shame. And so we try to work harder. Oh, no. No, the good news is Jesus Christ did it all. And so what we do is we step into repentance. We step into confession. We say, I have sinned, Lord. I step into you, not away from you. I step towards you because you're the one who loves me and you're the one who has already given everything I need in terms of my sin, in terms of my shame, in terms of my guilt. Jesus took it all for me. And so we step into repentance. So you sinned last night. You sinned last night. Step in. Step into Jesus Christ. Step into asking for forgiveness. Step into repentance. Step into confessing it. Because you know the one who's standing there is a God who loves you. He loves you. See, what motivates, what moves us then now as people who are going to be on mission like Jesus Christ was on mission is the love of God for them. See, there was a temptation that was going on there. We probably didn't pick it up there in terms of Nicodemus and Jesus. There was a temptation for Jesus to want to, on, to, to, want to get honor from Nicodemus. Here we have Nicodemus. He is the teacher, the teacher of Israel. If he can get Nicodemus on his side, he's the ruler. If he can get Nicodemus on his side... Imagine where he could have gone. So what he wanted is it was tempting to want to have Nicodemus to, to, to receive honor from Nicodemus. But he didn't because he was on mission. And he loved Nicodemus so much that he, was rather, he would rather honor Nicodemus, rather aim for Nicodemus' honor by telling Nicodemus, you're in the dark. You need to be born again so that you can be a child of God, and that is honor, to be called a child of God. And so he was willing. He was willing to set aside his own honor in order for Nicodemus to become honored by becoming a child of God. And so for us who are born again, believers in Jesus Christ, we are to be on mission. And what needs to drive our mission is the love of God for the person in whom he is calling us to be sharing the gospel with. And not seeking them to honor us or their look, approval, but rather that we're willing to say the things they need to hear in order for them to become honored. In order for them to become the honorable child of God, the son or daughter of God. And we also are called to be people who live now out of those who are born again, to live out of what Christ has done for us. So look at verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In God. See, this is a contrast to the wicked in verse 20 who avoid the light. The one who believes is the one who comes to the light, and the reflection of their belief is that they what? Do, that they do what is true. 
So they just like the wicked in verse 20, where out of their fingertips comes works that flow out of their love for evil. So out of our fingertips of the righteous comes works that flow out of their love for God. For what purpose? Look at the second part of verse 21. For what purpose? So that they may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in his own strength. In his, in his own turning over a new leaf. No. His own gumption. No. No. In God, that they may see that God is at work in our lives. See, believer, what you do with his mission results in life or death for you or death for those around you, depending upon how you respond to this mission. So, believer in Jesus Christ, who are you on mission to? Know this, whoever it is. God loves them. Well, perhaps you are here and you can't claim to be born again. God's on mission. He's on mission. His drive, his, his attitude, his heart, his lean towards you is one of love. He loves you. He loves you to such a degree that he was willing to give the rarest of rare, his own son, who is one who is, can go deeper than your deepest sins, than the ugliness and the darkness that you have lived out. Christ, Christ's sacrifice goes deeper. And he took those sins in his body on the cross and received the wrath of God that should be yours. He took it for you in order that you might live. And so, the episode ends this way. Believe. Just trust Christ today. Trust him today. Trust what the Father has done for you because he loves you. Trust him. Father, thank you. It's hard for us to comprehend the kind of love that you have for us because it's so unique, so different. We thank you and praise you for it. So, Father, our prayer is that you would give us faith, that you would give us belief. Our prayer is, Father, that your wind would blow, the Spirit would blow like a derecho into our lives, knock down the arguments that we are seemingly wanting to put up, the walls that we are putting. Just knock those down, Father. Knock those down for us who are believers in Christ to believe that somehow you do not love us because of something we have done or you do not love us because we're going through some kind of difficulty that makes no sense. Blow it down. Give us faith to believe that you are one who loves us. And Father, our prayer is for anyone here who is yet to trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, blow those arguments down. Blow, Spirit. Blow. We pray, give them faith today that they would say, yes, I want Christ as my Lord and Savior. I believe he died on the cross for me and rose again that I might have life. I don't get it all, Father, but I want him. 
We thank you, Father. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.